Good morning. Wow, that was exuberant. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good. Well, the three of you, that's awesome. Um, today we are going to be back into the book of Exodus. And no worries, we're only covering 46 verses today. Um, so we're not going to be here very long at all. Um, if you remember back before um, we went into our series on gospel marriage, you remember that we had been kind of unpacking the commands of the Lord as in regard to the tabernacle, the way that it was to be built, the way that it was to be filled. We talked about the priestly garments. We talked about the furniture in these holy places that are set apart for the service of the Lord. We talked about the courtyard. We talked about the linens. And we saw that all of these things were for the purpose of mankind being able to connect, being able to worship, being able to be connected back to their God, to be able to see a glimpse of what was lost in the garden as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. And we talked about how this was a way for God and man to begin to dwell together again. And today as we look at chapter 29 of the book of Exodus, we're going to begin to see the setting apart of the priest. Uh, the setting apart of them to do the work of Yahweh, to be able to do the work of God, to be able to perform their duties as priests, to be those mediators, to be that go-between, between a holy and righteous God and a sinful people. And as we walked through this, we saw that everything that we've seen so far is pointing forward to the work of Jesus. It's pointing forward to him being the better tabernacle, him being the better way for man and God to be able to dwell together. And we're going to see that again today as we work through this passage of the setting apart, the consecration of the priests to serve in the tabernacle. Um, if you want to, some additional reading that you may want to do in addition to this is you may want to go home and read Leviticus chapter 8. What that is is the actual carrying out uh, of these instructions that we're going to see today in Exodus chapter 29. But today we're going to see the Lord giving these directions, these instructions that must be upheld, that must be performed in order for the priest to be consecrated for his work now, there's a whole lot going on in this chapter. And if we were to take it and walk through it and see piece by piece, we would end up actually missing the forest for the trees. Because there's so much going on here that we could zoom into all of these details. And there's a tremendous amount of value in all of the details in this passage. But what we want to do today is we want to stand back. We want to look at it in kind of a broad sense. We want to see this amazing work of grace that God has allowed. And if we look at this for what it is, we're going to, be, uh, we're going to leave this place with a heart of thanksgiving. We're going to leave this place with a heart of thankfulness, with a heart of wonder for what God has done. So let's dive into this passage and work through it. And let's see what the Lord has for us. The very first thing that we're going to see in chapter 29 is that God's grace is shown in the consecration of the priest. That, that this is a work of God's grace. Let's look at verse 1. It says, Now this is what you shall do to them, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priest. So when we look at verse 1, we begin to see this very first why. Why is this to be performed? Why do we see these instructions? What is the purpose? What is God doing here? What God is doing here is establishing a way that by his grace, 
that they may serve him as priests. I mean, think about that. It's by the grace of God that they're even able to serve. We've already seen in the book of Exodus this idea that man can only come so far, haven't we? You guys remember that when we got to the foot of Sinai, we see that God's going to meet with his people. And we see God giving Moses these instructions to go and consecrate the people. To, to purify them for three days and then he's going to come and meet with them. But even at that, you guys remember the base of the mountain was off limits, wasn't it? That, that Israel could only come so far. They could only get so close to God. But then we see as we continue through that Sinai narrative that God is going to allow a way for the elders. God's going to allow a way for the mediator Moses through sacrifice to be able to go to the top of the mountain and be able to have a feast in his presence. You guys remember us working through that? And all of that is a result of the grace of God. And that's what we're seeing again today is that this is a way for man to be able to approach a holy and righteous God. This is a way for man to be able to interact with their creator. This is a way to begin to restore a tiny piece of what was lost in Eden. And we see that a sacrifice is provided. We see that there's a mediator in this story already as we've worked through Sinai. And we're going to see that again today, that it's a result of God's grace. We see a sacrifice being made on behalf of the people, on behalf of the elders. We see this so that in spite of man's sin, in spite of who man is, and in spite of the holiness of God, God is making a way for man to enter back into fellowship with him. These priests that we're going to see in our passage today are a continuation of that grace of God. They're a continuation of a way to bring back this fellowship. So how will man be able to connect with a holy and righteous God? It's going to be through this process. It's going to be through the priest. It's going to be through sacrifice. That's how God is going to come back and dwell with his people here in this tabernacle. It's going to be a place that's there. It's going to be the place where God's presence dwells. But it's also a place where man is going to be able to interact with God. And so here we see the special group of people. We see Aaron and his descendants being set apart as a group of mediators between God and his people. It's important as we work through this, though, that we understand that it's not by their own ability that they're going to stand before God. It's by his grace. It's something that he's going to do. There's nothing that they can do, right? Their only peace in this is response and obedience. That, that this is a work of God's grace. This is something that he is doing. It's 100% on his accord. And so as we work through this and we start seeing this checklist, we start seeing these things to do, it can be very easy for us to kind of fall into a trap. And think, oh, they're sanctifying themselves. So this is something that Moses is doing. This is something that man can do. But that's not the case. This is something that is only accomplished by God. It's only a, something that can be accomplished through his grace. It's God's grace that they may serve him. So the, that's the very first thing we see is that this is initiated by God. This is by his grace. It's by his doing. It's because of who he is. The next thing we see as we work through chapter 29 is we see this process of consecration. We see all of these steps laid out. And so let's walk through these and kind of hit these at a high level so that we can sort of see what's going on. First, we see that the priests were washed. We found this in Exodus 29 verse 4. It says, you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. 
So this very first step, this washing, is a symbolic cleansing. As we work through the Bible, we see that sin is associated with several different things. But one of the things that it's most commonly associated with is filth. It's associated with being dirty. It's associated with something that needs to be washed away and cleaned. We see this in Isaiah 116. It says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil from your, of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. We see it in Jeremiah 4.14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from evil that you may be saved. The most obvious connection you may have had in your mind when I mentioned this washing may have been baptism itself in the New Testament, right? That, that it's, this sim, it's a symbolic thing. It's something that's done to show this transformation that's happened inside of you. It's this thing that we do in, in the presence of our church family to show that we are indeed redeemed, that we have been washed by the blood of Christ, that we are different. And so it's this outward expression of something that's happening internally. And when we see this, that, that's the context that we need to view this in. That this ceremonial washing of the priest is a way for them to show in this very, very public ceremony that they are set apart. That, that there's something unique about them. That there's something different about them. That God has set them apart for a specific purpose as a specific people. But it also reminds them, it brings to mind to the people, it brings to mind to the priest of their condition. The only way that you need to be washed is if you're dirty, right? And so when you see this washing, when you see this cleansing, we need to see it in the context of a reminder. It not only shows that they're set apart to the people, but it reminds the people of the dirtiness of man. It reminds these priests as their filth. It reminds them of their sin. It reminds them of who they are. But this isn't all negative. Because understand that the only way to see the glory of God and who he is is to understand who we are as humanity. And so when we look at this process and we see this washing, we can view it as all negative of, oh, we're just terrible, sinful people. We're messed up people. Yes, we are, but it's in that context that we see the very grace of God. It's in that context that we see who he is. And so we see this declaration, this washing. Who are these men? They are set apart. They are separate. They are for the purpose of serving Yahweh. And what is the condition of man? We are sinful. We are messed up. But who is God? He is good. He is gracious. And he is able. And so this very first thing that we see, this washing, reminds us of those things. The next thing we see in our passage is the priests were clothed. So they were washed and they were clothed. We see this in verses 5 and 6 and 8 and 9. Verse 5 and 6 says, Then you shall take the garments... And put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastplate and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. Verses 8 and 9 say, Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. So the first thing that I want to point out here is that we have two different clothings here. I don't know if you guys caught that or not. But verse 5 and 6 is talking specifically about Aaron. And so if we're talking about Aaron, we're talking about the specific office of the high priest, right? 
And then when we get down to verses 8 and 9, we see that we're talking about his sons. We're talking about his descendants. And this is specifically the role of priest. Now, we've already walked through these distinctions. And so I'm not going to go too far into this. But I do want to bring out the fact that, that these are two distinct things. But in both of these cases, it's important for us to realize that these clothes are not their own. They didn't say, hey, we're going to get washed and bring back out your common robe. You're, you're going to get washed and put, you know, put back on your normal clothes. Put back on the things that you would wear every day. When we look at this clothing, we need to see it as like this official garment. It's almost like their uniform. How do you identify a police officer? Well, by the uniform. How do you identify a fireman by their uniform, right? And so we see this as almost this uniform that's going to set them apart. It's going to identify them by their role. That, that when you see this clothing, that when you see this placed on them, that it's going to set them apart. It's going to specify them. It's going to speak of who they are. It's going to speak of the fact that they are devoted wholly to the service of Yahweh. If you remember back to Exodus 28, verse 2, we saw that these are beautiful. Look at this. It says, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And so these garments have a function. You guys remember as we walked through all of the things in the holy place and in the most holy place, they were beautiful, right? They were covered with gold. They were adorned in a, in a way that shows the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, what God is afforded because of who he is. And so these men entering into his presence, coming into the holy place, and then in the case of the high priest coming into the holy of holies, they become part of that dwelling place of God. And as such... They should be clothed in a way that reflects that, right? And if you remember back, we talked through all of this in Exodus chapter 28. And so I don't want to go through everything, but I do want to remind us of a couple of things. That, that as they came in, as the high priest came into the most holy place, that he wore the names of Israel over his heart. That they wore the breastpiece of decision to determine God's will. They wore this turban. That was white with a gold plate inscribed on it with the words holy to the Lord. And all of this was so that they may enter the very presence of God. You guys remember Exodus 28, 43? It says, and they shall be on Aaron and his sons when they go into the tent of meeting. Or when they come near the altar to minister in the holy place. Least they bear guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever for him and for his offspring after. And so these garments, they're a covering. They're a covering of God's grace. Do you see that? How else is one to enter into service of Yahweh? How else is one to come into the presence of God? How else is one who is sinful and messed up to stand in the very presence of the creator of the universe? It's by his grace and by his covering. And so when we see these garments, we need to understand that. Now, when we look at this very often, we kind of get the wrong idea. Like we, we tend to think of sin can't be in the presence of God almost for his own good. Because that's not the case. It, it's not that God can't be in the presence of sin. It's that sin can't be in the presence of God. It's not like sin is this kryptonite to God that, that somehow if sin is in his presence, he's going to get weaker, right? 
It's not like his powers are going to be taken away. And so often we view that. We view sin that way. You need to understand that the reason all of this is afforded to these men so that they can come into the presence of God is not for God's safety. It's for theirs. I mean, there might be a breakout of God's holiness. And as a result of that, what would happen? All sin would be destroyed. And as such, these men could not live. They couldn't stand. They couldn't be in the presence of God. And so we see this process, this washing, this clothing, everything that we're going to see through this is going to be so that they can be in the presence of a holy and righteous God. And that speaks to the beauty of the grace that's seen in this passage. It also says in verse 28 that this should be a statute forever. So that the priests entering in to spend time with the Lord, they must always be covered. And that should speak to us, and we need to hold on to that for a little bit later, that there is no way to enter into the presence of God without first being covered. We're going to come back and we're going to see more of that. Next, we see that the priests were anointed. Between the two sets of clothings, you guys saw that I read five and six and then eight and nine, right? So what does verse 7 say? Between these two steps, we see that they are anointed, specifically Aaron here. Verse 7 says, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Anointing in the Old Testament was a ceremonial process of, of setting something apart. It was marking it with something. You could anoint something by pouring it over its head, pouring it on it. You could apply it with your fingers. You could rub anointing oil on something to anoint it. But it's seen as an outward symbol that God has chosen this person or God has chosen this thing for a specific purpose. That God has chosen this thing or this person to serve him for his work, for his purpose. And we see the weight of the anointing of God as we work through the Old Testament. We see in Psalm 20 verse 6 it says, Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Psalm 28.8 says, The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation for his anointed one. And when we get to Exodus 30, we're going to see the process by which this oil is made. Now this oil that's used for the uh, anointing of the priest is totally different than any other oil. As a matter of fact, the, the Bible gives a warning, and we'll see that in a few weeks, that if this oil is used for anything else, that person is to be cut off. That person is to be destroyed. And so this oil is special. This anointing is special. This anointing sets them apart. And when we look at this, remember that all of this is done in sight of the people that would have been in the courtyard. This is before the tent of meeting, right? Anybody that was there would have seen this process. They would have seen this washing. They would have seen this clothing. They would have seen this anointing. That they would look at these people and they would see all of the things that are afforded to them. That it's afforded so that... They may be able to be in the very presence of God so that Israel has a mediator to come in and worship Yahweh. Next, we see that a substitutionary sacrifice was given for their sins. We see this in chapter 29, verses 10 and 12, and also 36 and 37. It says, you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. We're going to see this done again later. 
Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour at the base of the altar. Now look at verse 36. It says, And every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. You shall purify the altar. When you make atonement for it, and it shall anoint it and consecrate it. Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. So we see these sacrifices for two different reasons. We see these sacrifices, one, to be able to purify the altar, and two, to be able to purify the priest. So the sacrifice is part of this process. It brought forgiveness to the priest, but it also set apart the altar as being most holy. I think one of the most interesting things about this passage is the way that it describes the altar. I don't know if you guys caught that or not, but throughout most of Scripture, we see something being made unclean by coming in contact with something that's unclean, right? We see that in the Levitical law. We see this process of being cleansed from uh, uncleanliness, how if you touch certain things, you touch a dead body, this process, you become unclean. But I don't know if you noticed this as we read through, the altar was different. The altar was set apart. It says that the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. And so this is different than the context of what we usually see. This is something different than what we see elsewhere in Scripture. That this altar is set apart in a way that touching it does not defile it. Anything that touches it doesn't defile it. But instead, that thing itself becomes holy. And this is a result of the sacrifice. This is a result of this work. Of a substitution, of an offering being made, of a sacrifice being made. For its cleansing. And we see the same thing made on behalf of the priest. That, that they are clean. That they are purified. As a result of this substitutionary offering. God allows by his grace a life to be taken on behalf of their sin. We, we know that the result of sin is death. We know that blood has to be shed. We see this elsewhere in scripture, right? That, that the purification of sin, that the cleansing of sin is only available through blood. But God in his infinite mercy allowed for the blood of an animal to be shed instead of these men. And so what does that mean? It means that their sin debt's been paid. It, it means that their sins have been taken care of as a result of this other sacrifice. As a result of this blood, God counts it. The next thing that we see is that the priests were marked by the blood. It wasn't just enough that the blood was shed. It's that the blood had to be applied. And look at Exodus 29, 19 through 21. It says, Take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the greatest toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. And he and his garments shall be holy, 
and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So we see the priests commanded to lay their hands on this offering again. We need to understand the weight of this, what, what's signified in this. What this does is it brings these men to a place. It brings them to a place that they understand as a result of my sin, because of my dirtiness, because of the things that I have done, because of who I am, this animal has to die. There, there has to be death for my sin. And so when we see this placing on of hands, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. We see it with the scapegoat. But what's happening here is that they're come, it's bringing to their mind, because of my filth, because I am set apart for the service of God, there has to be payment for my sin. And so by my placing my hand on this, I'm coming to this realization. I'm coming to this understanding. I'm recognizing who I am. I'm recognizing my sinfulness. And we see this pattern through all of these steps, don't we? We see that it's a process by which much is made of God's holiness. And much is made of man's condition. That, that, that's how we end up with this heart of appreciation when we see this. And there's a lot of commentators that really grabbed hold to the location of this blood being applied. It talks about being applied to the right earlobe and being applied to the right thumb and being applied to the great toe on your right foot. I'm assuming that's the big toe. I wouldn't call my little toe a great toe. But, but a lot of the commentators grabbed hold of this and said that what this symbolizes is that these men should have their ears always available to listen to the word of God. That, that their hands should be all about the work of God. That everything that they do with their hands should bring glory to God. And, and that they should walk in the way of Yahweh. And so this application of the blood cleanses them, but it also brings their mind to their purpose. It brings their mind to who they are and who they are to be. What does this show them? It shows them that they're no longer their own. Their hands are no longer for their own service. That their feet are no longer for their own service. That their ears, the things that they give their attention to, are no longer their own. That these men now are set apart wholly and completely to the service of Yahweh. Think about this a minute. They should have been the one to die for their sins, right? But they didn't. But now as a result of the substitution being made on their behalf, they're now called to die to themselves. They're called to not be their own anymore. The application of this blood made them royal priests. It made them royal priests no longer living for themselves, but instead living to God. And the very last thing that we see is the priests were fed. Exodus 29, 20, uh, 26 through 28. This shows that they're all Baptists. You shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that's waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of the ordination. From what was Aaron's and his sons, it shall be for Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due from the people of Israel." For it's a contribution. It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. So what's happening here now? We see provision made, right? 
that when people come to offer their, their, um, their peace offering, that when we see this process of this consecration of new priests, because there's going to be new priests every generation, right? When we see this happen, that part of this process is feasting. That part of worship is feasting. That part of worship is God's provision. That part of this coming together is celebrating in the provision of the Lord. And I find it so amazing that the part of this contribution that's going to continue for generations, the part of this contribution that's going to continue perpetually is part of the peace offering. You guys may not know this, but the peace offering is the only offering in all of Scripture that the person who brings it gets to partake and the priest get to partake. And remember, we've talked about this, right? That God is a God of feasting, of celebration and joy. And what greater joy is there than feasting in the presence of an almighty God, the feasting on his provision, understanding that he is who provided things for us, that understanding that he has given everything to us. And so the last piece of this is feasting and celebration for God's provision. And so at this point, what has happened? Well, what's happened is now we've seen these men set apart. We've seen this process take place. We've walked through this. And so what's the next thing that we see in this passage? We see the main reason for it all. That it's so that God may dwell among them. When we look at this whole process, remember we started with talking about it being uh, uh, God's grace, a process of God's grace. Verse 44 says, I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I'll consecrate to serve me as priest. I'll dwell among the people of Israel and I'll be their God and they shall know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is an amazing thought, isn't it? That that God would instate this process so that... He can dwell with his people so that he can be with his people so that a glimpse of what was lost in the garden may be realized again. Notice the term that's used here for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. We saw that before in chapter 29. We've seen that in several chapters as we've gone through Exodus. We see it first introduced four chapters ago. But it's this idea that the purpose of all of this, the purpose of the tabernacle, the purpose of the priest, the purpose of all of these things is so that God may dwell with his people. And that's the beauty of it, right? It's amazing to me that God would do this, that the God of all creation, the God that's worthy of worship and praise and adoration and sacrifice would look at a people that had pushed him away. Look at humanity, right? Look at us who are sinful people and say, I will do this so that I can dwell with them, so that I can be with them. And the way that this is worded in verse 46 is that they should know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt. And so every time they saw this ceremony, every time, remember we've talked about this with Passover, every time Passover came around, every time they saw this ceremony, their minds would be brought back to the very things that God had done on their behalf. And it would remind them that he is a God who wants to be with his people. He's a God that's made a way to be with his people. You guys remember all the way back to chapter 8 of Exodus. Remember when we started walking through this narrative. You remember what Moses came and told Pharaoh? He said, God said, let my people go so that what? 
they may worship me. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing the completion of this call. We're seeing that God is putting these things in place, that God is setting up this process so that his people may be brought out of bondage, not just out of bondage, but out of bondage to worship him. And that's the beauty in this. That's the beauty in this process is that it is so that, so that God's people may worship him. So we walked through this, right? We, we looked through it in a setting of what's happening historically, what's going on. So now the question is, what, what do we do with this? What does this mean for us? What does this mean as we leave this place? What do we take home from this? Well, I think that what we should be reminded of is we should be reminded of God's gracious activity in Jesus and how it makes it possible for man and God to dwell together. Remember, we've talked about this, how everything with the tabernacle points forward, right? It points forward to Jesus. It points forward to who he is. It points forward to what he will do. And it reminds us back to what he has done. And so when we read chapter 29, there's all of these interesting things that we can dig into, that we can look into the details, and we could have connected these type of offerings to things that we see in Leviticus, these types of sacrifices. And if you want to do that, you can. It's amazing to see. But what it should remind us of today is what has been done for us in Christ. I mean, think about everything that we've talked about this morning. The very first thing that we saw is that this process is a result of God's grace. It's not anything that the priest could do. It's not that they could cleanse themselves. It's not that they could consecrate themselves. And when we get to the New Testament, we see in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that it's for grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And as a result... It's not a result of work so that no one may, may boast. It, it reminds us that our salvation is not something that we do. It's a gift of God. It's by his provision. We see in Exodus 29 that there was this symbolic washing to inform the world around them that they're set apart. It should push us forward to the New Testament. It should remind us of this picture of baptism, how we're immersed, how this is done so that others can see that our family of of God, so that those as part of this community can see something that's happened internally. And it should remind us of that. It should remind us in a very real way that we need to be washed of our sins. Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart And with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. It should remind us of 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. It should remind us of that washing. It should remind us of that cleansing. We should look and see that they're clothed with priestly garments. We should see that in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, that the wearing of garments is a picture of the life of the believer. It's taking off this old self. It's putting on this new self. We see that in places like Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. It speaks of taking off our old self. We see that in Colossians 3. Look at verse 12. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord is forgiving you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This clothing should remind us of Galatians 3.27. For all of you who are baptized in the Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It, it should bring to mind that he is our covering. That, that Christ has covered us so that we may enter into the very presence of God. That, that, that this is a result of his grace. That this is something that he has done. He has covered us. Next we saw that Aaron was anointed with oil. We've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. Look in 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22. It says, and it's God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 1 John 2.20 speaks of followers being anointed by the Holy One. 1 John 2.27 speaks of this anointing on us, teaching us and growing us. We must understand that those of us that have trusted in Jesus and are following him have been anointed. Next, we saw a sacrifice on their behalf. A substitution was provided for their sins. Jesus is our substitutionary sacrifice. He's the means through which we may be forgiven of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he has made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins and his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Matthew 26, 28. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. A sacrifice has to be made. But, but not just made. We saw in our passage that the blood of the sacrifice was placed on the priest to remind them that they no longer live for themselves. In Romans 12, 1. We see I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. And then we saw God being their provision. And we know that God is the source of everything. So as we've walked through this, what we have seen is this process of our cleansing. The process of what Christ will do. Of what Christ has done. And this was all done so that they may dwell with him. That God may dwell with them. But we understand that in the New Testament, all of this is done in Christ so that God's spirit may dwell within us. It's not that we get to go into God's presence somewhere over there. It's not that we look at the tabernacle and say God's in there. God's somewhere over there. But, but when we look at the New Testament, when we look at the completeness of what Christ has done, we see that God dwells within us, his very spirit dwells within us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? So what is the result of all of this? The result of this is what was read at the very beginning of our service. 1 Peter 2.9 but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
You guys see what's happened here? Those of us that are redeemed are priests. It's that idea of the priesthood of the believer. What does that mean? That, that we, that we are enabled because of the covering, the washing, the sacrifice, the application of the blood of Christ to be able to worship God, to be able to come into the presence of God and that God is able to dwell with us. We should celebrate in that. We should rejoice in that. That the God of the universe made a way to dwell with us. Are you amazed in that? Are you amazed in the fact that God in his grace made a way for you to worship him? Are you amazed that sinful man can be reconciled to God? Are you amazed that sinful man has the opportunity to worship God even? Are you amazed at the fact that man is able to be in the presence of God? Are you amazed that it's not by your might? It's not that you clean yourself up first and come to God and say, now I'm good enough. It's that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Are you amazed by those facts? Does it blow you away that God wants to be with you? Does the truth of the gospel still shake you? Are you about the work of the gospel as a result of that truth? If you are priest, which those of us that redeemed are, does your life reflect it? Do you pour out or do you just receive? This is a question that I promise isn't a guilt trip. It's just a question. How do you serve? If we're priests, if we are called to, to be in the worship and service of Yahweh, how do you serve God? How do you put your ears and your hands and your feet to action? How do you live this faith out? Are your ears attuned to his voice? Do you listen to his call? Do you work with your hands? Do you move with your feet to follow his calling? Do we do those things? Those are questions that we have to answer, but the most important question that has to be answered is for every single person in this room. Has your heart been melted by this truth? Has your heart been melted by the truth that you cannot save yourself? Has your heart been melted by the truth that you cannot reach God? Has your heart been melted by the truth of God loves you so much that God wants to restore what was lost in Eden? That he provided a way by his grace for those who would respond in faith. Have you, have you pushed into that? Have you responded? Have you been reconciled to God? Has the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus been applied to your life? Have you trusted him with your eternity? Have you laid your hope in him? If not, today can be that day. Today can be the day that you bow your knee, that you um, bend your knee, that you bow your head to the kingship of Jesus. Today can be the day that you're set apart for his service. Today can be the day that by the grace of God, you can accept all of what he has done. Remember, beloved of God, the life we live is not our own. We've been bought and redeemed with a price. We've been consecrated as priests through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our life should reflect that truth as we live out service to him. Remember 1 Peter 2.10. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your mercy. God, I, I can't wrap my mind around the fact that you provided a way by your grace that I might be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that you let that truth set heavy on my life and on our life. Lord, that you washed us, that you clothed us, that you sacrificed on our behalf, that you laid Christ down, yourself down on our behalf, that the blood of the sacrifice has been applied to us for our cleansing. Lord, let us never take that for granted. Lord, we were bought with a price and we are called as a people that we're consecrated, that we're set apart for your service. Lord, remind us that the life that we live is not our own. That we're to live as living sacrifices now as a result of you and your gift of grace. Lord, let us be quick to respond to your word. Let us be quick to respond to your call. Show us places to put our hands and our feet to work in action to serve you. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that today they'll be shaken by the truth and as a result of your grace and the conviction by your Holy Spirit that today be the day of their salvation. And Lord, to you be the glory. Lord, I pray that you give measures of faith in this room to respond. God, I thank you that you've called us to be priests, the royal priesthood. That doesn't even sound right knowing who we are as humanity. But knowing that you've done so, lets us just see a glimpse of who you are as God. Lord, I ask that you let us walk out of this place and live out the truths of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.